Episode 166 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you in part by FreshBooks, offering you a free 30-day unrestricted trial. To find out more, visit freshbooks.com slash read to lead and be sure and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Don't make the unconscious decision to let the world position your product or service. Make the conscious decision to tell the world how they should think about your problem and therefore your solution. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now here's Jeff. Hello again, I'm Jeff and welcome to the podcast. It's dedicated to your personal and professional growth. If you love business books as much as I do, then you've come to the right place. One of my goals is to help you get through more books in less time and also to help you know what you need to be paying attention to. If it's a book featured on this show, you can rest assured that that I have vetted it and the author pretty rigorously. Today's book digs into the topic of marketing and innovation specifically. It's a book called Play Bigger, which came out in June of 2016. The subtitle is How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. This book has more authors than any book I've ever featured here on the show, four to be exact. And the person we're talking to today is Christopher Lockett. And I plan to ask Christopher about what it means to sell different versus sell better as a company, uh, the importance of understanding what he calls category design and the steps to take to identify it for your company, how not to let the grind of the day-to-day lull you into taking the easier route, and much, much more. The book is divided into three parts, and I am currently about two-thirds of the way through it. And as you might imagine, most of my questions for Christopher will come out of those first two sections. If you run a business or or maybe a side hustle margins of life type business, you no doubt know how frustrating sometimes the whole accounting process can be. It's one of the reasons why I love FreshBooks cloud accounting software. They're sponsoring today's episode. And something that I don't know that I've mentioned before that I love about FreshBooks is I have the debit card for my business tied to my FreshBooks account. Anytime I use that card for a business expense or while traveling on business, those expenses, because I'm using that card that's connected to my FreshBooks account, are automatically added. So not only is FreshBooks keeping track of everything coming in, but it's keeping track for me of everything that's going out. FreshBooks has been making my life a whole lot easier since 2009. Now is a great time to try FreshBooks because of that free 30-day trial where you get to take advantage of all of FreshBooks features. To claim your free trial, you just go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead. And be sure to enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Absolutely nothing to lose and everything to gain. Just visit freshbooks.com slash read to lead. Christopher Lockhead is a former three-time public company CMO and entrepreneur. He's a human exclamation point, according to Fast Company magazine. Uh, The Marketing Journal says he's one of the best minds in marketing, and The Economist calls him off-putting to some. Uh, At 18, he was thrown out of school, and with no other options, he did what anybody else would do. He started a company, and after 30 years, he's, he's mostly retired. 
Christopher is also the co-author of the book we're going to talk about today, which is good. It's called Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. And I'm excited to have him here. Christopher, welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's really, uh, it's really great to be here with you. Well, one of the things that grabbed my attention right away at the beginning of the book was um, almost a, a throwaway line in the book about uh, your childhood. And I read that you were well into your 20s before, as it's put in the book, you realized you weren't dumb. Uh, can, 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 uh, can you talk a little bit about what your childhood was like and that realization in your early 20s? Yeah. So at 21, I discovered I was dyslexic. Mm. And at that point, Jeff, I'd been out of school for a few years. I, I left. Uh, and when I say I left, it turns out if you get enough F's and D's, they tell you to <laughs> not come back here anymore. Uh, so when I say I left, that's what happened. Mm. Uh, um, and so, yeah, I got thrown out at 18 and discovered at 21 I was dyslexic. And all of a sudden, my relationship with my education made sense to me. You know, the thing that didn't make sense to me at the time was, you know, I, I couldn't understand why uh, math and science uh, and geography and, and those sorts of more analytical things, uh, spelling, uh, <laughs> why that was so intergalactically hard, why reading was hard for me. It just didn't make any sense. And yet I knew that I had skills, you know, and I knew that um, I was good at a set of things. And uh, I, I couldn't rationalize the two. It just didn't make any sense to me. And so um, what I was afraid of was that people would find out that there was this, you know, part of me that w was, quote unquote, stupid. I couldn't spell. I couldn't mm -hmm. do math. If it hadn't been for a grade three teacher that told me it was OK to count on my fingers, mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't have been able to do any of that stuff. And so I just I couldn't understand why I was good at things like music, art and drama and, and why I was so terrible at everything else. Hmm. Well, I want to get into the book a bit, if we can. I, I, I've often heard that uh, you know a great business idea is found in you know, the incremental improvements, oftentimes on an existing idea. Explain what you mean uh, when you say in the book that the most exciting companies don't necessarily sell better or incremental improvements; they sell different. Yeah. So, if you think about every uh, product or service that you and I love. They exist because a legendary innovator or entrepreneur essentially got three things right. Mm. They got category, product, and company right at the right moment in time. And so when you begin to unpack what, what is it that the most legendary innovators and entrepreneurs did, what you begin to realize is if, if you believe that your product or innovation is truly an innovation, then by definition, it's different than what has come before. Mm. And a mistake that a lot of people make is when they go to bring their innovation to the world, because the world doesn't necessarily have any concept for what that new innovation is, will position their product or service inside a category that's currently understood. Mm. Because if you have something that's a breakthrough and you don't give people context for it, then they're not going to understand it. So it's a natural, uh, if you will, mistake. What the legends did was they really understood that if I believe that my new product or service is a breakthrough – then I have to position it as such. I have to explain to the world that this is a major step forward. I have to explain to the world that this isn't an incremental improvement on what came before. It's truly something different. That is to say a huge step forward in whatever area you're in. And as a result, I need to explain to the world what problem this new innovation solves and why that problem matters and do it in a way that they can distinguish it from what came before. 
you uh, define this phrase early in the book uh, called category kings and, and say that they're not necessarily the companies that wind up uh, first out of the gate with a new idea. I, I think of you know, Apple immediately comes to mind as rarely being first uh, with, uh, with an idea. If, if category kings aren't first, then, then what do category kings specifically do? Yeah, it's a great question. And so the category king is the company that uh, designs and dominates uh, a given market category. And what they do that's interesting is to, in order to be a category king, you either have to just purely get lucky, which of course happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was walking down the street and somebody just handed me a billion dollars and I thought, hey, this is really cool. And now I'll just go buy Hawaiian Island. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, that that happens. And, and, and a lot of entrepreneurs are smart enough to know when they get lucky. And mm-hmm. so that that's great. But the vast majority of them don't just simply get lucky, of course. They, uh, as we talk about and play bigger, prosecute the magic triangle. That is to say, they get product, company and category right And on the category side, Jeff, to sort of get to your question, it's not the company that is uh, has what we used to call in the uh, old days first mover advantage. That is Mm -hmm. to say what we most most people thought when you heard first mover advantage was I'm first to market with a new product. Well, if you look at um, social networking as a great example, Mm -hmm. you know, my dear friend, uh, Paul Martino, who's a successful venture capitalist at an outfit in Silicon Valley called Bullpen Capital was a co-founder of one of the very early uh, social networks, a company called Tribe. And they were two years ahead of Facebook. And so if you sort of take the old thinking, well, first mover advantage, um, you know, Martino and his co-founder should be on the cover of every magazine. And (laughs) you and I should be sharing our vacation photos on on Tribe. And of course, that didn't happen. And so Zuckerberg was the first to get all three things right. In the case of Tribe, they couldn't quite figure out how all those three things came together. And so even though they had a two year, quote unquote, first mover advantage, if the world doesn't relate to the problem, they're not going to have the solution. And so Zuckerberg uh, defined and designed the problem of social networking very differently than Paul and the rest of the team at Tribe. And so that's really the distinction. It's the first to get all three things right. You know, you mentioned Apple, Jeff. Gates introduced the tablet PC in 2001. <laughs> right. And he had a features discussion with the world. Look, it slices, it dices, it spins on its head, it does all the stuff. And the world didn't connect the list of features, which were truly impressive. It was great technology, but they didn't relate it to any kind of a problem that mattered. And they certainly weren't able to distinguish why I would need a tablet PC uh, from a a laptop or a phone. Mm. When Jobs stands up in 2009, he doesn't make that mistake. He literally says, we believe the iPad is a whole new category of device. Mm. And what he lays down is what you might think of as a point of view with an argument that frames a problem. In this case, the problem that he saw was um, laptops and phones were not actually great devices for content consumption and communication. Mm. And he creates that argument, and we all agree with him. And today, if you spun the iPad division out of Apple, it would be a Fortune 500 company, and Microsoft doesn't sell tablet PCs. You know, I got to tell you, Jeff, it's an aha for most people because Mm. most people interact with the market like they interact with the weather. (laughs) Like, oh, today in Santa Cruz, it's going to be sunny in 66. Excellent. I need to prepare my my ass for sunny in 66. (laughs) 
And, and when you read about companies, you sort of read the same thing. Oh, Dell is suffering from a takedown in the uh, server and storage markets. <laughs> and, and what they don't understand is our businesses are a function of the way we do business, not the other way around. Mm. And so, um, you know, Steve Jobs famously said, uh, people don't know what they want until I tell them. And so legendary marketers do not accept the rules of a category that was designed by somebody else. They create a whole new space and they design their own category and they establish the problem that they want people to relate with and therefore the solution. And so, you know, if you think take a big step back, Jeff, why is it? that you can buy a flat screen TV at Costco for 150 bucks and a pair of high-end Maui gym sunglasses cost 300 bucks. Mm. You just sort of look at it on its face and you go, oh, wait a minute. Uh, one product is some plastic I wrap around my head and the other product talks to satellites in space. <laughs> right? And, and so, and, and you go, well, how come there's one sort of value equation, if you will, in one category and a completely different one in another. Mm. Well, somebody, if you will, condition the world to think about those products and particularly the problems those products solve and the value exchange around solving that problem. Mm. You know, my dear friend Bix Bixen says that most people and companies are living in somebody else's thinking. Mm. Legendary entrepreneurs, particularly if they truly believe that they have an innovation, are unwilling to have their innovation compared to what came before. They want to take new ground. Mm. Or that is to say they want to establish uh, the value in the market the way they see it. And so that's how you get Maui Gyms at 300 bucks and Costco TVs at 150 bucks. And so for if you're an entrepreneur or an innovator of any kind, the challenge is don't make the unconscious decision to let the world position your product or service. Make the conscious decision to tell the world how they should think about your problem and therefore your solution. And if you can do that powerfully, you can, if you will, as my friend Scott Lowry says, create your own niche and become nouveau riche. <laughs> <laughs> Well, part two of the book uh, gets into some of the how-to, and chapter four starts right off with, with the $64,000 uh, question, I think. Share some tips or steps, if you would, Christopher, to how to discover a category. How, how, do, we, how do we find that? The first thing is, what, what was the aha that had you create the product, company, or service? Uh, most uh, innovators of any kind they see something, and our friend Ann Mirico of Floodgate Capital helped us kind of wrap our heads around this. And, and what she says is there's essentially two kinds of uh, insights. There's a market insight, and a great example of that would be Lyft. Mm. Uh, these folks say, well, why can't I press a button on my phone and have a car automatically come and get me? And so if you will, Jeff, the, the problem of personal transportation was well understood and well known. And the paradigms around solutions were well understood and well known, you know, taxis and buses and subways and, and, and limos and so forth and so on. Um, and in this case, the Lyft founders and the Uber founders reimagine this problem called personal transportation mm -hmm. in the context of a smartphone. And the aha they have is – how come I can't press a button and get what I want? Well, that's called a market insight. And then there are uh, other insights that are pure technological mm. insights. 
Uh, one of the founders we interview in our book, Play Bigger, is Diane Green, the founder of an incredibly successful enterprise technology company called VMware. And her and her husband and co-founders were essentially playing around in a lab, and they 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 wrote some code that they thought was really cool, and that was sort of it. There wasn't necessarily a market applicability. You know, another example that we love is um, is the folks at Corning. Corning's about a hundred and forty or hundred fifty year old company, and they are willing to do product innovation. Mm like real R, R&D, if you will, <laughs> and then wait for the world. And so one of the stories we tell in the book is the story of how Corning discovered what today is called Gorilla Glass, the glass that's on your smartphone and mine. And they waited some 40 years for that touchscreen glass to have an application. That is mm. to say they had created a solution for which there was no problem. <laughs> and, and they waited until the world figured out a problem. And so in, in that in both those examples, VMware and, and Gorilla Glass, you have a technical breakthrough that has no obvious applicability, but the engineers that created it think it's really cool. And then in both cases, they sort of uh, wait for the right time and place for the world to find an application. And when they do, ba-boom. And in both cases, to kind of circle back to the category king discussion, Corning is now the category king. That is to say, they, they are the market leader with Gorilla Glass. And so is VMware in what is today called virtualized computing. And so uh, regardless of whether you have a market insight or a technical insight, you got to get clear about what you have. And then you got to get really clear about, OK, what problem does that solve? How do we articulate that problem in an incredibly powerful way? And then once we do that and the world relates to that problem, they're going to be the path to the door, uh, our door for the solution. Uh, my brother used to work for a company that was bought a couple of years ago by Salesforce. And so I read with interest what you had to say about uh, their CEO and some of the Salesforce history from uh, early last decade and, and kind of the, the playground they were in and, and how they redefined that space. Uh, you know, I think Mark Benioff's one of the greatest category designers of the modern modern age. And, uh, you know, I think what most people would miss is they'd say, oh, well, he's the creator of cloud computing, which, of course, he is. But pre-cloud computing, the whole idea was insanity. <laughs> because if you said in the 1990s, hey, listen, this is what we're going to do, okay? <laughs> All, you major corporations, you giant banks and insurance companies and stock brokerages and, you know, all these giant companies, you're going to put all of your customer and forecast data, you're just going to dump it into a web browser and we're going to run that on our servers. And you can look <laughs> at it whenever you want, but like we'll run it in our data center and we'll have all the data about your customers just over here. And whenever you want to look at it, you just log on to our thing. And oh, by the way, you're not going to own this. You're going to rent this. Mm. Well, in 1997, 1998, that was pure insanity. <laughs> you know, another two examples I love are, are Facebook. Could you imagine in the early 2000s if a company came out and said, hey, listen, this is what we want you to do. Go to this website. Tell us when you were born, where you were born, who your parents are, who your siblings are, where you went to school, uh, what you do for a living, who your children are, who your spouse is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and then we'd like you to update, mm, I don't know, three to four times a day what you're doing, ideally with photos of who you're with, particularly if you're with children and, and all. And oh, and we want you to tag everybody so we know all this all the time. <laughs> there would have been riots in the streets. <laughs> And we all do it willingly today, going to update yeah. the Facebook, right? And so 
and, and the other example uh, I love right now, of course, is Airbnb. Mm. Uh, almost everybody on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley said no because they looked at the idea of renting your couch mm. as completely uh, a loss of mental faculty that could only be explained by the prevalence of cannabis in California because it just didn't make any sense based on anybody's uh, uh, perspective of the past. And yet in both cases, the founders of these companies imagined a different future. Mm. And they taught the world how to think about that future, and in particular, a problem and a solution in a different way. And of course, the rest is history. Mm. And I think it's important to to point out, too, that it's not always, uh, the goal isn't necessarily uh, disruption. Uh, disruptions often or can be a byproduct. Uh, but in the case of Airbnb, uh, you know, they, they didn't disrupt necessarily the, the hotel industry, right? That, that's absolutely right. And it's interesting, you know, when, when you as an innovator or an entrepreneur say, hey, we want to disrupt the XYZ industry. What do you think everybody in the XYZ industry <laughs> thinks about you? They don't like you very much. <laughs> they don't like you, right? And so you're, you're absolutely right. You know, we talk about, um, Jeff, how creation wins. And sometimes creation creates disruption. Uh, in the case of Salesforce, they literally have, have stopped the way people think about buying enterprise software. And now, of course, uh, you and I buy cloud software mm. as individuals, as consumers. And so there was massive disruption that took place there. Airbnb is, you know, in the beginning, didn't didn't hurt the uh, travel industry at all. Today, they're probably affecting it to some degree. Right. You know, another example I love is a, as a um, uh, never was but enthusiastically mediocre musician Les Paul, the creator of the electric guitar, created the category as well as the product. Mm. He didn't disrupt acoustic guitars. Right. Right. And, yeah. and most guitar players have one of each if you're going to be a guitar player or many of each, as is the case may be. <laughs> and so it was a different, and to get back to one of your earlier questions, category of guitar mm. that I used for different reasons. And uh, Les Paul was able to educate us about that this was a different mm category of guitar and when I should use one and when I should use the other. Uh, in my own coaching and mentoring, I talk a lot about the importance of, of drafting a worldview statement is what I call it. And I saw a lot of similarities between that and your uh, point of view strategy. You've hinted at some of this, but, but can, can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah, I would, I would love to. It turns out when you research the legendary innovators over time, the vast majority of them have a what you might think of, Jeff, as a different point of view. Mm -hmm. That is to say, the world works a particular way, and they, they see a problem with that. And they go to work on the solution. And then when they go to uh, deliver the, 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 the solution to the world, um, if you just plop the product into the market and you do what Gates did with the, um, uh, the tablet PC, most entrepreneurs or innovators, they have a features discussion. Look, it slices and it dices and mm -hmm. it does this. What the legends do is they have a point of view and they educate the world about that point of view to think about it differently. So here's a simple example. In the very beginning, uh, Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, he didn't attack Blockbuster head on. He said, well, Today, you drive to the video store and they may or may not have the movie that you want and they probably don't. And then you got to talk to a sweaty zitty kid behind the <laughs> counter and then your spouse is pissed off because we don't have the movie we want and we can't. It took us long enough to agree on that movie and now we're here and they don't want movie now. And if you have children and rant, rant, and oh, by the way, and we paid, paid a late fee and we had to get in our car and all that. Right. Mm. So he says, hey, um, I have a different idea for how to solve a problem called 
get the movie to your house that you want. Mm. Instead of driving, go to a website. Instead of paying late fees, subscribe. And then just magically have them show up in your in your mailbox. And of course, today we stream them over the Internet. And so that was a different idea. And he taught the world how to think about that idea. And as that happened, uh, you we in the book, we call them, Jeff, you may remember from twos or Frodo's for short by having a point of view and by engaging the world in that dialogue. He taught us, and I use that word on purpose, to think about this problem called how do I get the video to my house that I want in a completely different way. And for most of us, once we saw the problem the way Reed did, we, of course, got the solution and all of us stopped driving to Blockbuster, so much so that Blockbuster literally went bankrupt. <laughs> but, but to underscore what happened there, uh, Netflix didn't compete. They moved the entire market from the way it was to the way they wanted it to be. And so what I would posit to you is that everything we believe, we believe because somebody conditioned us to believe that. Mm -hmm. And so what category designers do is they teach the world to think about a problem and therefore a solution in the way they want. And they use the point of view as a way to articulate that. And I think it's important, too, to note that he didn't succumb to, to early pressures to offer the streaming option prematurely. He waited until... The majority of the world was was ready for that and then offered it. Yeah, it's an amazing thing about category designers who are intuitive about the, their market space. On one hand, you want to be visionary and take the take the category forward. But at the same time, you got to meet the meet the category where it is. You know, another simple example, of course, is Henry Ford uh, in, in the beginning it's going to take a massive change in infrastructure to make the automobile work. And he's got to, he, know, he understands that he's got to do it uh, over time and slowly, just, just the way Reed did in the video business. And so when he launches his new innovation, he, he understands intuitively that if he says, ta-da, automobile, <laughs> the world's not going to know what the F that is. <laughs> and so do, do you remember what he called it? Oh, no, I don't. He called it a horseless carriage. Oh, yes, 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 of course. And so in so doing, you kind of go horseless. What do you mean horseless carriage? Like it, it's it's the just the category name itself is almost a provocative point of view. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and if he asked his customers uh, instead what they wanted, uh, as we've we've all heard, uh, they would have said faster horses. Right. <laughs> Exactly. And so it's in, there's an interesting dichotomy here, which is if you're doing sustaining product management, that is to say you have a successful product in the market, you have good market share, maybe you're the category king. It makes a lot of sense to listen to your customers when you're trying to figure out what are the next five features to build. Um, but when you're trying to do a breakthrough, um, listening to your customers is probably the worst thing that you could do to, to that point. Yeah. You may already be thinking about this in your own mind. Chapter six gets into the realities of, of the day-to-day -day issues you face and the, and the need to resist uh, this pull of what, what Christopher calls gravity. Uh, Christopher, you've been in the middle of this with, with dozens of companies numerous times. What have you seen as some of the larger pitfalls to watch out for? So uh, the first one you're on is is um, is a very, very powerful one, uh, this notion of gravity and, and, and what we mean specifically. And to be clear, there's three other authors of the book. So this is not just my thinking by any stretch. Mm. Uh, but that said, it's comforting to go to a known market category. Mm. 
because if you're trying to target the flat screen TV category and you pull out a research report and you say, well, in America, that's a N billion dollar market space. And here's how the market share plays out amongst Samsung and LG and all the different players. And and so when we go to launch our our new carbodingulator, we're going <laughs> to position it you know, as a step forward for TVs because that's a known market. Hmm. And it turns out that attacking a known market is arguably the stupidest thing we can do in business. <laughs> and if you go back to your question about Category Kings, uh, we did a very meaningful amount of primary data science research for the book Play Bigger, and led by my partner, Al. And we built a big data store of every venture-backed tech company founded in the United States from 2000 through to the time we delivered the manuscript, which mm-hmm. was the end of 2015. And we asked the question, what percentage of market cap not market share, but market cap, that is to say total value created in any given market mm-hmm. category, goes to the leader. And it turns out in the tech space, Jeff, that number is 76%. And so what I'm saying to you is most executives make an unconscious choice to attack an existing market with an innovation. Mm. And when there's a category king in that market, that's a billion-dollar mistake. And – I know it seems more comfortable to go after it. Well, you know, people are spending money. It's that old story, right? The salesperson goes to some remote country and they're a shoe salesperson. And, you know, salesperson number one, he gets off the plane, looks around, says, nobody wears any shoes here. There's no market. I'm out of here. Salesperson number two shows up. She looks around and goes, hey, nobody wears any shoes around here. What an untapped opportunity. And it, it turns out. The less risky move in business is to go after a zero billion dollar category. And I'll give you an example. Microsoft has spent in excess of 10 billion dollars on its search engine Bing. And uh, when Steve Ballmer launched Bing, he said the search advertising industry was ready for a good old feature war and we're going to give it to them. (laughs) And 10 billion dollars later, one of the greatest companies in history has not been able to affect Mm. Google's market share or market cap one iota. And so what I would posit to you is if one of the greatest companies in the world with some of the most brilliant minds in the world and more money than, you know, the Lord could ever bestow on a company, Mm. then what makes you think you could attack an existing category with a better strategy and win? You know, as, as you discuss that, uh, I thought of another example that illustrates quite the opposite. But I think about Internet Explorer and how Internet Explorer had such a huge chunk of the market for a long time uh, until Google Chrome, you're talking about the same two companies, started, started chipping away at that to the point that, that Chrome has a pretty sizable share. Yeah, it, it certainly is possible. Um, and if you look at it recently, another fascinating data point around that, um, Jeff, is uh, you may have seen that Android now from a number of users perspective mm-hmm. is the category leader in uh, mobile devices. Right. And so in situations like those where you have essentially both both product and category neglect from the category king, mm-hmm. Uh, there is an extraordinary opportunity. Mm. Um, but that doesn't happen that often. Right. And the only way it can happen is if you're lucky enough to be that, that if you will, fast follower number two. The, the other area we see that going on right now is uh, it, it appears Uber is trying to commit uh, Harry Carey. 
Um, mm. And so if you think about, we call it prosecuting the magic triangle, product, company, and category. In the case of Uber, they've done a lot of things to screw up as a company that is now engendering a lot of ill will in the market. Mm-hmm. And so that is creating a door, a window, if you will, for uh, Lyft to walk through. And so it, it, it can happen, but generally it's it's a suicide mission. And generally for you to be successful, it takes a pretty big uh, F up, if you will, <laughs> by, by the category king mm-hmm. to, to let that happen. And in the case of some uh, category kings where there isn't really a viable competitor – the company can screw up consistently and it doesn't matter. If you look at a company like Lululemon and you think about it in the context of the magic triangle, they've crushed uh, uh, category design and product design. And yet it's a company that misses its numbers on a fairly regular basis. It's a company whose you know, leadership has said very you know, questionable things about uh, ladies' posteriors and, 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 mm. and so forth and so on. And, and so – you know, it engenders uh, all this negativity around its uh, its practices as a company, whether it's on Wall Street or for some uh, silly comments that get made. But yet the, the category of athleisure is so powerful. There's like a there's like a law in, in California that at least a quarter of the women need to be in this stuff at all times. Mm-hmm. Well, we've covered uh, in the questions I've asked uh, mostly uh, part one and part two of the book. I'll leave uh, part three for you to dive into. Uh, on your own. Before I do move on to some questions, uh, Christopher, not directly related to the book, if I may, is there anything else from the book uh, you want to make sure we we know? Anything from part three or anywhere else? Yeah, I think the big sort of idea for folks to begin to wrap their head around is um, position yourself or be positioned, Jeff. Mm. Most of us accept the way the world is. So whether it's uh, uh, the, as individuals, uh, the way uh, you think about your career or as entrepreneurs or as innovators. And the big breakthrough is the legends drove the world to think about things differently. I'll give you a simple example that, that I really love, um, which is uh, my favorite band, the Ramones. Mm. So if you think about the 1970s and rock and roll music in the Western world, what was popular at the time was ever increasingly more complex music, whether it was the more experimental stuff at the end of the Beatles or, you know, Led Zeppelin getting started or some of the, pro- the prog rock bands. And uh, yes. And, 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 and then you think about um, Peter Frampton and his amazing guitar playing and all of that stuff that was going on. And here you have you know, four young guys in New York who want to be rock stars and they, they can't they can't play, you know, virtuoso guitar. Mm. And so they start making a noise. And when they first come on the scene, if you listen to the Ramones, if you will, from the same place, Jeff, that you listen to uh, Led Zeppelin, you say, well, these guys are garbage. <laughs> and, and if you compare them, and that's what consumers do, from a technical standpoint, it's hard to argue that the Ramones music is not garbage. But the Ramones say, hey, you can't compare us to Led Zeppelin. Mm. That's hard rock. We're this new thing called punk rock. And when you are willing to accept a new definition, or in this case, a new subcategory of, of music, then you, you literally listen to and evaluate the music differently. And they taught us how to listen to punk rock. This is exactly the same thing Pablo Picasso did. Mm. When, when people first start looking at his artwork, they go, well, this looks like the work 
of an insane eight-year-old. And he says, well, you can't evaluate my work the way you evaluate traditional art. This is a new form of art, a new category called cubism. And it's not until you're willing to look at the world through a cubism lens are you willing to get that Picasso's a genius. And so I would posit to you that what makes the Ramones the Ramones, what makes uh, Picasso Picasso, what makes Salesforce.com Salesforce.com is the category makes the company. And in all those cases, the innovator or innovators was were proactive in explaining to the world with a point of view about why their stuff is different and why that difference matters in the world. And when that happens, boom, all of a sudden, Pablo Picasso goes from being an idiot to a genius. Hmm. I was sitting here running through uh, Ramon's song titles in my head, trying to figure out how to work one into my next question, but I, I came up <laughs> short. <laughs> well, uh, if you would, uh, Christopher, think about the books that you've enjoyed over the years. I'm sure they are many. Uh, what would you say are the two or three titles that, that, that come to mind as having had the, the biggest impact on you? Yeah, and I, I just, you know, I love, you know, that your podcast is called Read to Lead. And the, it's just so important to me because, you know, just quickly before I answer your question, Jeff, you're talking to somebody for whom books made a giant difference. Mm. And I'm dyslexic and reading started to get hard in grade three for me. Right. And yet I wanted to read. And as a young man at 18, I literally had no money, no education, no experience, no contacts, no nothing. And started a business with my friend Jack with the Yellow Pages the phone book and a clone computer and, and obviously a big dream. And, um, and, and so the only ways I could learn was of course, by doing, by seeking out coaches and mentors who would help and by reading. And so at that point in my life, I became a real, um, big time or, or should I say bigly, uh, reader. <laughs> and, uh, and I read a lot of technical things too, because I, I didn't have a technical background. Of course I didn't, you know, couldn't deal with any of that stuff in school. And so uh, you're talking to somebody that, if you will, had to force myself to read, had to learn to read in a way that was probably different than the way you uh, and non-dyslexic folks uh, learned to read. And my desire to make something in my life was so strong that, um, you know, I, I, I had to, if you will, educate myself in a, in a non-traditional way. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the books I'm about to share with you are, are books that really, I can say, made my life what it is today. Mm. On the business side, you know, a handful of books, particularly as a young man, made, made a big difference. Uh, the E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Mm. Uh, I think he's a genius. Um, and that distinction between working on and working in your business and being a process-oriented business and comparing small businesses to franchises and all of the things that he unveils in that book. I can remember being a very young man sitting there reading and just thinking, like, this this guy was Moses with the tablets for me. <laughs> um, an, another book that had that kind of impact for, for slightly different reasons was uh, David Ogilvy's Ogilvy on Advertising. Mm. Um, you know, I was at the time struggling with how to do marketing. And, you know, because I was trying to create a small business with my with my friend Jack. And so um, David Ogilvy, in a lot of ways, becomes the foundation for a lot of my early thinking. Uh, and the other ones that I would sort of put in that same category very early on for me were the recent Trout books, Positioning, Marketing Warfare, mm -hmm. uh, 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. Um, 
those guys are geniuses. And then a little bit later on, as I was really flexing my muscle in, in my early uh, career as an entrepreneur, particularly in the tech world, a, a, an author named Jeffrey Moore came out with a book in the 90s called uh, Crossing the Chasm. And uh, that book just was an incredible eye-opener as well. So, so those would be a handful on the business side. Any thoughts, comments, questions? I'm a huge fan of, of E-Myth as well, a book I read uh, several years ago and was invited recently to speak in an event later this month uh, that he is speaking at that I had to turn down. I'm <laughs> just kicking myself for not being able to have that chance to, to spend some time. Yeah, I think if I ever had an opportunity to meet uh, Michael Gerber, I would probably fall to my knees and give him a couple <laughs> of we're not worthies because of the difference that he made. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the other thing I think about now as a guy who's about to be 49 years old is uh, I think about, you know, what would ha- what, have, what would have happened in my life if those guys don't write those books? Mm. I know it sounds so corny. And a lot of people talk about it today. But, you know, the gratitude I have to those to those folks for writing those books is, is immense because now having written a book myself, uh, you know, I know how hard it is to do that. And, and I collaborated with three genius guys. So, mm. you know, some of these folks wrote these books on their own. And I'm just incredibly uh, grateful that we get to we in business get to stand on the shoulders of, of these great minds. Mm. Well, let me uh, wrap up by asking, Christopher, what's what's next up for you? What are you and your team working on now that, that's got you particularly excited now that, now that you've had to, maybe a little bit of a chance to breathe since the book came out in, in June? Yeah, well, th- thanks for asking, Jeff. Um, so the, the short answer is the big new thing in my life is uh, I started a podcast called Legends and Losers. <laughs> and um, I don't have to tell you, I'm sure, but uh, in a very short period of time, Legends and Losers has become uh, one of the most important things in my life mm. to the point where it's like I, I can't remember my life without it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we try to unpack uh, sort of our, our point of view. Our mantra is you can't be a legend without being a loser. Mm. And of course, when you hear conversations with legendary people, us normal people can sit there and go, oh, well, you know, that's just great because Michael Jordan has a special freaking uh, you know, organ next to a spleen called legendary at basketball. And I don't have that <laughs> organ. And so, you know, that was a great interview, but who cares? Right. Mm. So we try to really unpack how legend and loser is the same coin, but just different sides and how, how failure can um, lead to success. And, and it's also a, a platform for dialogue around entrepreneurship. Um, entrepreneurship is at an all time low in the United States right now. And the wall street journal last year declared uh, that there was a crisis in American entrepreneurship. And so uh, with Legends and Losers, we're also hoping to be part of sparking uh, a breakthrough in thinking about how to design a legendary life and a legendary business. So that's probably the most exciting thing I've got going on. And and um, just to let you know, I, I did something very counterintuitive. When our book, Play Bigger, came out, um, I was a partner in a company called Play Bigger Advisors with, mm. with Dave and Al, two of the, the three co-authors that I have. And um, for me, Jeff, handing in the manuscript was really a period at the end of um, uh, 30 years. Mm. And so uh, I retired shortly after the book came out. Oh. And so Dave and Al, God bless them, they, they continue forward with the company Play Bigger. Mm. 
I have had time in my life ever since. And, you know, the great thing about that is I've had the ability to interact with people from all around the world who've read the book, Play Bigger. And many of them said, you know, we want more. And so in some ways, Legends and Losers is the more. But as crazy as it might sound, the beauty of retiring when a book like this comes out is I get to spend time with our readers Mm. that I never would have had before if I was, uh, you know, day to day in our advisory business. And and, um, that's really been a very cool thing. Hmm. Well, our guest again has been Christopher Lockhead, and he is the co-author of the book, Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. Uh, Christopher, it was a pleasure uh, chatting with you and diving into the book. Thank you so much for, for giving of your time so, so freely today. Well, Jeff, thank you for having me. But most importantly, I, I really want to thank you for, for your show. As you could tell, books have made a huge difference to me. And the fact that you shine a, a powerful light on on authors and books and ideas that are really uh, making a difference out in the world. I, I just love that you do that. So thank you for your show. And uh, thank you for having a, a loser like me on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry it took me nine months uh, since it's uh, released to get around to having you on the show. But I, I should. Hey, I that's should. okay. <laughs> I should give a hat tip to uh, uh, Tom Schwab uh, over at Interview Valet for bringing this to my attention. I also saw a video, uh, a Facebook Live video that Chris Brogan did, and 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 this book happened to show up somewhere uh, just sitting on his desk, and um, I asked him what he thought about it, and he had great things to say about it, and it it was on my desk, too, and I thought, I got to make this the next one I read, so... Here we are. Well, then you know more about what Chris Brogan is doing than I do. I've seen, I, I think I've seen two now, if I'm not mistaken, of his, you know, he does those fun videos that are very uh, kind of a glimpse into his life. And, and you just see a little peek of Play Bigger in, I, I want to say it's two of them. It's definitely one of them. And so, mm. yeah, I, I hope he's been reading the book and um, hope he loves it. But uh, I do certainly, and I'm sure my co-authors do appreciate him flashing a little Play Bigger leg, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> For a plethora of ways to connect with Chris, to find out more about his own podcast, as well as the books he recommended today, just visit the show notes page created especially for this episode. And that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 166 for episode 166. If you haven't already done so, do yourself a favor and check out that free trial from our sponsor, FreshBooks. Everything to gain and nothing to lose. Go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and be sure to enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. And we're about ready to close the door on Read to Lead University, my members only book club in uh, just a matter of days. So if you haven't got in on that yet, be sure you go to readtoleaduniversity.com to find out more. You can also text the word university to 33444. Well, that does it for another week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read to Lead.